Uh, we're going to continue in our series that we just started last week, the series in the book of Ruth. We're calling this the Gospel According to Ruth. Well, when you think about the Bible, you might think about things like instructions, or you might think about the laws, or you might think about uh, maybe the Gospels that talk about the life of Jesus. You might think about the prophets who are you know, have messages of warning and, and sometimes destruction and sometimes hope. You might think about the Psalms that are kind of the, the, the hymns of God's people throughout history to, to elevate um, praise to God. What you might not really think about are what I call narrative gems, beautiful stories that are told either as whole books themselves or inserted in different books of the Bible. If you read, for example, Nehemiah, you read this amazing story of this, this leader who who was in a far-off land and, and, and responded to the call of God to go back and can reestablish the, the city of Jerusalem. Or you might uh, think, you know, might read the story about Joseph, who the, the younger brother who was, who was, you know, sold off, trafficked into human slavery by his older brothers, and yet God was doing this marvelous work. And this story is all these twists and turns of narrative gems and delights. You may think about the, the, the book of Esther that has, uh, you just, it's just like, just has you on the edge of your seat as you read. It's only not very many chapters long, ten chapters long. But as you read it, you're just taken in uh, by the story. Well, the book of Ruth is one of those narrative gems in Scripture. It stands on its own as just a beautiful story. And yet it's packed with meaning and it's packed with uh, instruction. And it's, it's packed with, with metaphors and parallels and, and lots of foreshadowing. And that's where, that's where we're going to be in for these four weeks uh, in the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament, so if you're new to the Bible, you're going to start at Genesis, you go five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, then Judges, and then Ruth. So I think that makes it the eighth book in the Bible. Now, uh, last week we looked at chapter one and we were introduced to these two women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And uh, Naomi was a Hebrew woman from uh, a little town called Bethlehem. You're going to hear about that town in this season, and uh, she, with her husband, and, and had moved off, and her two kids had moved off to a distant land called Moab, across the, the Jordan River and south into the mountains of Moab, because there was a famine where they lived, and they needed work, and they needed supply, and while she was there, her husband and her two sons died, and she was left alone with her two daughters-in-law, and so one of those daughters-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite woman, she, Naomi, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, moved back to Bethlehem, because they'd heard that things were better, things were going good. So you see on the map there how this happened. You got Bethlehem over on the kind of upper left side of the Dead Sea, and you've got Moab kind of on the bottom right side of the Dead Sea. And so they would have made their way back up and over. Now, to be widowed today, as many of you have found, is hard. It's hard, but it's not a guaranteed hardship like it would have been. Then, I mean, we thankfully have things like life insurance and social security benefits, but, but in that time, and even in many parts of the world today, it's almost a certainty that if you're widowed, you will end up in poverty, unless someone rescues you out of that. And the story and the romance, really, of the book of Ruth is, is only possible because of a significant practice in ancient Israel's legal code called the Kinsman Redeemer. Now, you can read about it in Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25. It, this practice, the kinsman redeemer practice, was meant to protect the property and even the, the family line and the widow 
of, an, of, a, of a homeowner who had either died or become impoverished. So let's say that you own a piece of land and you've, you've become very poor and your only hope is to sell your land just to be able to feed your family. The obligation was that a family member would buy that from you and, and allow you to stay on it and until the year of Jubilee then it would be given back to you or given back to your family line. Or if you died and you, you left a widow behind, uh, a family member would, would, could purchase that land and most likely acquire the widow as one of his wives in the process, hopefully having a child together, a son together, that could then hold that piece of property in their, in their line. You need to understand that for, for Israel, for the Hebrew people, the most precious thing is the land. There's nothing more valuable than the land. God has a high uh, value. God gave the land. He didn't just give an identity to the Israelite people. He gave them the land. It's why it continues to be such a place of struggle and battle to this day because they don't just see that this land is oh, a place to farm. They see this as this is God's piece of dirt and he's entrusted us to care for it and we dare not give it away because it's God's and he's put us in charge of it. That's why it's so important. And when you think, well, why don't they just kind of make a deal and give a bunch of it away? And No, they can't. It's God's. It's not theirs to give away. You've got, you've got to grasp that. And so this kinsman redeemer practice allowed land to stay in a family's line. All right. Now, that word redeem, you think about that when you go to the grocery store, there's something you can do. You can redeem a coupon. You get 25 cents off, you know, a pot of coffee or a can of coffee because you have a coupon that you redeem. It means the store is buying back that coupon in exchange for 25 cents. That's what that means. Well, that word redeem to buy back. There's another way we use that, right? Jesus is our Redeemer, He's the one who buys us back with His own blood from sin and death in the grave. And so, this important picture of the kinsman, family, relative, redeemer, buyer back person is important because it points to Jesus who is our kinsman, redeemer. We said, you know, last week that this whole book is a, is a, is a picture or a foreshadow or a pre-telling of the gospel message that we have this Redeemer in Jesus, that Jesus alone is the one qualified to buy us back from death and to give us eternal life. And then as if the spiritual significance of this whole book were not enough, get this. It's a romance. It's a story of love. And then they'll be marriage, right? I mean, it's just a marvelous story. And today we meet the love interest. He's a hunky guy named Boaz. So I've noticed in all the children that I've seen born, I have yet to meet a family who will name their child Boaz. I don't know. I'm not sure why. Chapter 2 is also going to give us an even clearer picture of Ruth's character. We met her last week. She's the daughter-in-law, but she's the hardworking, compassionate, dedicated, unassuming, humble, you know, courteous gal. And Boaz is pretty fantastic himself. And, uh, and I, I, you know, just a word to younger single guys and gals, and this will apply a little bit more at the 11 a.m. service, but do not, do not underestimate the authors. When you read this book of Ruth, do not underestimate the authors you know, effort to paint a picture of what to look for in a potential mate if you, if you should so desire a life partner. There's some hints about what to look for. So, all that to set up. Ruth, chapter 2. I'm going to invite you to remain seated today because it's kind of a longer section. I may make a couple of comments along the way. But if you could find that in your Bible, I want you to find Ruth, chapter 2, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Okay? 23 verses. It begins like this. 
says, Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And one day, and remember, Elimelech has died and, and Naomi's sons have both died. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Huh, all right, that's a setup. Right, and while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. And Boaz asked his foreman, Who's that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? The foreman replied, Oh, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters, and she's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes' rest in the shelter. And Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting, and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. So just to pause here for a moment. What you probably have is the men going ahead with the, the, the sickles harvesting, right? The size, they're chopping the stuff down. And the women come behind, bundle up the stalks of barley into, into sheaves. And then those will be gathered up later for, for threshing, to, to bash them apart and, and, and get the grain out. All right, so let's pick it up there at verse uh, 10. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked him. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Verse 13, I hope... I continue to please you, sir, she replied. Oh, that sounds like a little like a bit of a pickup line too, huh? You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. Well, when Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. This guy's great. Nobody's playing hard to get in this story, right? So Ruth gathered barley there all day. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. And she carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from the meal. Now, where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked for, worked uh, with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He's showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. 
that man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, well, what's more? Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the harvest is completed. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Uh, Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. And so Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. And then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. What a great story. Isn't this shaping up to be like... Some of you are not actually going to listen to me for the next 10 minutes because you're going to be reading the next other chapters. Hang on, we're going to get there in the next couple of weeks. But we know now as readers, we know that Boaz is somehow going to be Ruth's rescuer, don't we? Her savior. I mean, just the way he reaches out to her also mirrors the way Jesus reaches to us. And we're going to talk about some of those things. We've, we've said one reason this book is important is that it sheds some light or, you know, like, and it gives us a, a little snapshot of life in ancient Israel, including this practice of gleaning. Verse, I've got a, a passage here on the screen, um, Leviticus chapter 19, that explains it. It says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It's the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes in the vines, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. So God had crafted, God had created a way, um, a, a, a social, um, you know, social welfare structure right in their laws. It's kind of, and for the homeowners, it's kind of self-taxing. Now today, you pay tax that helps the poor and so on, but that's how they, that's how that was intended to be at that time. And so that God allowed that. What's really interesting, it, it, it also was meant to protect and preserve the dignity of hard work so that a poor person could provide for themselves by working for it. And it was not a perfect situation. We get a hint that maybe it was dangerous in some fields. Naomi says, stay in that field because somewhere else you might have problems. Um, but it was an important practice, this idea of gleaning. You can't do it today because we're worried about getting sued if someone comes in your vineyard um, without you know, being a, an employee and so on. But that was an important practice back then. Now, we also established last week uh, when we were talking about chapter one is that Ruth was an outsider to this Judean village and this culture. And, and, and we all that we all experience that to some degree. Um, in some way, you feel like you don't kind of quite match up to the world around you. You don't quite fit in. And ultimately, we're all outsiders to the kingdom of God until we put our faith in Christ Jesus. And once we do that, then we're outsiders to the culture around us. Now, when you feel the sting of an outsider's loneliness, when you recognize that I don't quite fit here, what's one thing that makes a difference? It's to be noticed, isn't it? To be recognized, to, to have someone notice you. I want to show you a picture here. This is 1991. <clears throat> I, I'm in England on an internship. I wasn't always as handsome as I am today. So... Uh, I was working in a, a, I'm in the broadcast booth there. You can go to the next one. Uh, that was a little painful to look at. And uh, just hold that picture there for a little bit. So I was doing a summer internship in England. And um, the, the president of the Bible college that I was attending at the time happened to be in Eng, coming to England that same summer. And so we met for a lunch at this pub, The Perch, in, in Oxford. 
And I'll tell you, as a, as a young guy, away from home, far away, lots of strangers around, to be recognized, to be noticed by someone familiar, and not only that, someone of authority in my life, someone of a kind of a, you know, kind of a higher position, was incredibly affirming, incredibly like, just a wonderful experience for me. And we've got a little bit of that same thing here as, as Boaz effectively notices or recognizes Ruth in her aloneness, her loneliness, her being a foreigner. And so we're going to mention three things about you know, how Jesus, your, your Savior, reaches to you and how Boaz does that. And the first thing is this, that the Savior notices you. If you're taking notes, you can write this down today. It's an outline in your program. The Savior notices you. He sees you. He recognizes you. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Right? While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, said the Lord bless you. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? The, the Savior notices you. I, Ruth was likely not the only gleaner in the field. Very, very possibly. And yet Boaz really picked her out. He noticed her. And we, we see in verse 11 that he had heard about her. Her reputation had spread, but he hadn't yet met here. And I want to tell you, there's some good news in this for you, that you know, you're doing your thing, right? You're, you're trying your best to care for your family or you're, you know, keep your boss happy or keep up with your parents or keep up with your grandkids. And, and sometimes you just feel like you're just overwhelmed. It's too much. You, you can't keep up to the pace of it. It's busy. There's, there's not quite enough money every month. Uh, your, your car now needs some work. Your kid's college tuition is a little bit shocking. You're just weary. You're having a hard time keeping up. I want to remind you that the Savior sees you. He notices you. He, he, he notices you in that field of life, picking up the scraps, doing your best to keep it all together. He's the one who initiates the relationship with you. Just as this wealthy older Boaz humbled himself to step out and, and talk to this poor young widow, Jesus, your Savior, humbled himself from heaven to come to earth. And he speaks to you. So that you can speak to him. And, and, and at this point in the story, verses 8 and 9, Boaz set up some really favorable parameters for, for Ruth, right? He says, stay, stay here with the other women. You'll be safe with them. Help yourself to the water. Avoid the dangerous fields. Just, just spend all your time in this place. And, and, and just stay with us through the whole harvest, even. And, um, you know, by the way, as long as we're talking about foreshadowing here that moment that Boaz offers Ruth a drink of water if you're a Bible reader you might flash forward to John chapter 4 there's a story of Jesus at the well in Samaria in a dangerous place like he was in and Jesus reaches across cultural lines and says have some water living water just as Boaz is doing for Ruth Boaz did did even more than the benevolence of providing a safe place for Ruth, he elevated her dignity as he affirmed her worth. Look at verse 11 again. He's, yes, I, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I, I've heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here. May the Lord, the God of Israel, reward you fully. You need to know that the Savior sees your value. If you're writing things down, you can note that. 
a Savior sees your value. It would have been very easy for Ruth to just feel worthless, right? A poor, widowed, foreigner with no prospects for the future, probably struggling with a language barrier, right? Supporting her mother-in-law while she herself is trying to work out her own grief, but trying to help her mother-in-law in this time. And there's not a lot of me time in this whole story. It's a tough place to be in. And Boaz speaks right to her heart, right to that tender, wounded place. Because he notices her kind deeds. He notices her the sacrifice she's made to leave here. And, and he builds her up for it. Ruth didn't think much of herself. Verse 10, she says, Well, what have I done to deserve such kindness? I'm only a foreigner. I don't really matter here. That's what she's saying. I don't matter here. Why would you notice me? I don't matter. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that. That, that you don't amount to much. That nothing you do matters. That no one appreciates it. Well, that's hard. And I want to tell you, matter to the Savior. You matter to Him. He sees it. Boaz saw Ruth's care for Naomi. Saw her hard work in the field. He saw her, her courteousness when she asked permission to glean there. He saw the sacrifices she had made. He, he saw all of that and he praised her for it. Your, your good reputation, friend, might well be spreading beyond what you realize. Boaz saw her value just as Jesus sees yours. You have an ability, or a gift, or a dream, or an idea, an insight, a skill, an experience, maybe, maybe a wound, or a scar, or a quality, or a sacrifice, or a commitment that maybe only you know about. Maybe it's been overlooked by others. Maybe it's been underappreciated. I wanted you to hear the Savior saying, I, I see it, I notice it, I recognize all that you've done. I see your value, because you're valuable to the Savior. And just as Ruth then bowed down at the, the feet of Boaz and expressed her appreciation, we're invited to f- fall at the feet of Jesus ourselves and hear Him speak to us. We're, well, let's flash forward again. We're like the woman in John chapter 8. If you're a Bible reader, you may, you may remember this story. A woman who was caught in an act of sin, who had been brought to Jesus and cast down before her for the purpose of punishment and even death. And rather than condemning her, Jesus helped her. And maybe you, maybe you feel a bit like that. You, you just you don't feel like you're worth much. And I want to tell you that rather than condemning you for your sins, Jesus, Jesus invites you to be forgiven, to receive His mercy, to be noticed and, and valued by Him. He invites you to trust in Him, to stand up and, and walk forward in your worth and in your value that He has upon you to be forgiven and free in Him. The Savior sees your value and well, you need to listen to Him. You need to let Him tell you about that. Well, the story gets even better because then Boaz invites Ruth to the table. He didn't just give her a handout of grain and say, here you go, here's, here's this should get you through for a while, bye-bye, I'll be generous and give that to you. No, no. He allowed her, like I said, the dignity of working for her living, but then at lunch he invited her to the meal. Because along with food, Ruth needed acceptance. She needed a community. She needed life around her. And Boaz did that as Jesus does that for you. Because the Savior provides for your needs. You can write that one down. The Savior provides for your needs. And you can write my needs in there if that helps. Verse 14 says, At mealtime Boaz called to her, 
come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. Wow, there's more foreshadowing here in a couple of ways. You know, I look, I apologize if you're new to the Bible and these parallel references that I'm making are not familiar, but I, I want you to see this. Maybe you've heard about the times that Jesus fed masses of people, a feeding of 5,000 people, a feeding of 4,000 people with just a little bit. And each time, each time we're told those accounts, it's, we're told that they ate all they wanted with food left over to spare. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. We're getting a picture of what Jesus is going to do for His people and for you and for me. Leftovers to spare. The, the Savior provides for your needs. But not only that, consider this picture. Boaz, the, the kind and wealthy man, he's loved by his employees. You see that. He's, he's genuinely concerned for others. He invited Ruth, the widow, to the table to share bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? I wonder if somebody would be willing to run the risk of trying something with me. One volunteer. Who would come? I would like you to share bread and wine with me. Dexter, come forward. In the text it says, dip the wine. Your translation might be wine. New Living Translation says sour wine. Um... Commentators agree it was probably something like a wine vinegar. Ever had wine vinegar before? Yes. It does not taste that great. <laughs> Is this a problem? Do we need to talk about this? No, I just can't. Invited her to... Now, maybe it was probably more like a pita bread or a flat bread, but... Dexter, as we, as we do this, we're going to see what bread and wine vinegar taste like. Okay? See if this is edible or not. But I want to ask you, how does it feel, Dexter, to be invited to the table to share this little meal together? Go ahead. Help yourself. It's welcoming, isn't it? You ready to try this? Why not? Let's do it. Go ahead. Dip your bread in my wine. might be an acquired taste. Definitely an acquired taste. Yeah. Well, I will leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> you may be seated. Wow. In a few minutes, moments, we're going to celebrate communion together. Where Jesus, celebrating the Passover meal, had invited his disciples to share the bread with him, to take the wine together. The bread representative of his body that would be broken for him. The, the wine representative of his, his blood that sealed a new agreement, a new commitment. We're being promised of what Jesus is going to do for you. When we celebrate communion together, it's not simply a reminder of what Jesus did, although that's part of it. It's not meant to be a reminder of your weaknesses and failures. 
It's an invitation to the table. A welcoming into the communion of Christ. The gathering of His people. The community of His people. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, or maybe that's something that's so far back you're not even sure that that was real, Jesus again today invites you to put your faith in Him. To say, Jesus, I trust You for forgiveness. And I, I want to come to the table to be in communion with You. In fellowship with You. The way that Boaz cared for, reached out to Ruth. Because after this, it, you, know, you saw that passage in verses 15 and 16 where we see that Boaz arranged for his harvesters to deliberately leave extra barley for Ruth. Ruth was able to take home a large amount. It, it, your translation might say an ephah of grain. It's, it works out to about six milk jugs full of harvested grain. It's pretty good for a day's work. And as a reminder... Even though she, he provided for her, she worked hard to pick it up. I, I would just say, let's never say, I did this myself. I, I, I earned this. I, I, I made this happen. No. Your Savior provides for you. and Everything that we have is from Him. He gives you the skill and the strength and the opportunity for your employment or your retirement. And, and we want to thank Him for it and praise Him for it. But He's our provider. And if Boaz is meant to be a picture of our Savior Jesus, Ruth is a picture of you and me. The poor and the grieving foreigner. We need to notice, I just, you've got some blanks in your outline, I want to give these to you. We need to notice how Ruth responds to her Savior's kindness. First of all, she responds in humility to every person she meets. At no point is she self-promoting. She's a humble person. And her reputation confirms that. She She's filled with gratitude. She responds in thankfulness to Boaz, in particular her rescuer, but also thankfulness to God for the rescue that she's experiencing. And she acknowledges that his words, verse 13, your words have brought me comfort. She needed comfort. She was just struggling through life. And she was maybe had never been allowed to sort of weep properly for her lost husband. And his words brought her comfort. And and then generosity, she just worked hard. She worked hard on Naomi's behalf and, and she gladly shared what she'd gathered and then she continued to go back. I mean, are those qualities that you and I have when we think about all that Jesus has done? For those of you who have experienced salvation, are you known for your humility and your gratitude and your generosity? This time I want to invite the worship team to come back and join me on stage. I want to invite the deacons to Go to three tables. We have three tables for communion today. We're going to invite you to, to leave your seat and go to the table for communion. Uh, if if uh, mobility is a little bit of a struggle for you today, uh, maybe some of you can watch for someone else that can help you with that. That's great. Let me just grab my Bible. The back table, by the way, has gluten-free elements and the other two are regular elements. Jesus is inviting you to the table. We, this practice um, of, of sharing the meal together, it's pretty, it's pretty personal. Like, like there might be some double dipping going on with that bread going in the juice. 
It's pretty personal. And I want you to know that Jesus invites you to the table not because you're a failure, but because He's the Savior. You've got to get that. This is not to shame you. This is to welcome you into the communion of God's people. Let me jump forward to, to Matthew chapter 26 where Jesus and His followers, they're having what we call the Last Supper, their last meal together before His arrest and crucifixion. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and He blessed it. And He broke it in pieces and He gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is My body. And He took a cup of wine and He gave it, gave thanks to God for it and He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it for this is My blood which confirms the covenant between God and His people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. It was just recently in Israel, a few weeks, two weeks ago, and one of the things I learned there, this idea of a shared cup is, is common in their kind of celebrative moments at weddings and so on. It's not unusual to pass a cup because it says we're in this together. As you go to the table, there's individual little kind of thimble-sized cups, but the idea is that we are gathering together. So we're going to have some instrumental music before we sing one closing song. And as that music plays, I invite you to go to the table to take the bread that represents Jesus' body broken for you, to take the cup that represents His covenant of blood, of, of new life for you. But I want you to be thinking about Ruth. And just that precious invitation to the table with this great, powerful, generous man, Boaz. And that's Jesus for you. He's your kinsman redeemer. He's buying you back and welcoming you to the table. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for this moment. We thank you for this picture of of Boaz who reached out to, to Naomi. She wasn't really worth much in her own eyes, but she was she was precious. To Him and just as we are precious to You. And God, for the person who's here today feeling like they don't amount to much, can You remind them that You, that you recognize them and that you, you see their value? That you, you invite us to the table? That You provide for our needs? And God, as we, as we celebrate communion, we want to say, Jesus, thank You for Your body broken for us. And thank You for Your blood poured out for us. And we praise you that the grave is not full of your bones, but it's an empty tomb. And that gives us all the more reason to celebrate with anticipation of the coming kingdom when you will celebrate that great feast with us. Thank you for welcoming us to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.